I have titled this sermon, The End of the World as We Know It, and there are usually uh, two uh, reactions when you hear that the sermon is going to be on Matthew chapter 24. I mean, this is end time stuff. This is uh, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is the second coming. There's, there's two groups of people. There are certain groups of people that even just saying Matthew 24 and eschatology, they light up and they're like, I have been waiting for this Sunday. I brought my charts. You know, all in. Uh, can't, can't wait for the preacher to talk about uh, those, those end times things. There are others that are like, uh, whoo. I know it's all going to work out in the end. Uh, I don't really need to concern myself with how, and it's all, it can be so confusing, and I'm told that even Christians disagree a little bit on how this is going to go down, and it's so confusing that it just gives me stress when I know my Jesus is coming back and he's going to work it out, right? And that's another group. But here's what I know. I know that all scripture, the Bible says, is profitable. It's not all equally easy to work through, but it's all profitable. It's given to us. To build us up. One last word of warning before we dive in. Commentators agree this is a difficult passage to interpret in Matthew. I I, I could give lots of examples. One of my favorites was J.C. Ryle begins his comments on this scripture by saying, Portions of scripture like this ought to be approached with deep humility and earnest prayer for the teaching of the Spirit. And I thought that's pretty good advice. With that in mind and with all that's happening in the Middle East, I thought the best thing we could do is begin this message with Deep humility and earnest prayer. Will you join me in prayer? Father, again, we come to you in this worship service in prayer. Our hearts are broken as we see devastation of war, again, in the Middle East. Great evil has been perpetrated against Israel, and we pray for your justice and your peace. I pray, O Lord, for an end to bloodshed, And we pray for those upon whom wars always fall the heaviest, the children, the sick, and the poor. And for them, we pray your mercy. Lord, let your kingdom come. And now, as we turn our attention to this passage of Scripture, give us, O Lord, a deep humility. Give the preacher humility as he approaches this scripture, but give us clarity of thought and an open heart to receive uh, not so much the teachings of any man, but what the Holy Spirit would have to teach us today. And we ask this humbly in Jesus' name, amen. What's the setting? Jesus has come. Remember, this is his final hours. Uh, In just uh, a short while, he'll go before the chief priests and uh, he'll be uh, crucified and risen on the third day. He has just, in Matthew 23, he's pronounced woe and judgment on the leaders in 23. And he ends chapter 23. I know I told you to to turn to chapter 24, but to get a running start, you might check out the end of 23. He ends by lamenting over the fact that though he's done everything, he's had a heart full of love. The leaders of Jerusalem have rejected him and now nothing awaits but judgment. Look at how he says, Matthew 23, 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Listen to his heart of love. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? What a precious image. I just wanted to pull you close, but you were, and you were not willing. See, 
And this verse, verse 38, should give us chills. See, your house is left to you desolate. Isn't that something? Your house. When you talk about a house in Jerusalem, it's obviously the temple. Every time Jesus has been in the temple, my father's house. This is my father's house. Uh, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. And now, here, judgment has come. It's, no, 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 it, your house. Why? Because God has left the building. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, I've left. I'll make one final appearing, but the leaders have rejected Jesus. They're about to crucify him. It's as if he's saying, know this, your time and your temple have come to an end. And it breaks Jesus' heart. And the, 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 the new chapter, chapter 24, opens with a verse that's loaded with symbolism. Jesus left the temple and was going away. Well, that's a verse loaded with symbolism, isn't it? Jesus has left the building, y'all. Jesus left the temple, and it's more than just physically. He's saying the entire temple system, what has he said over and over again? It's on its way out. And I'm going to incorporate a new body of believers, of Jew and Gentile together, and they're going to be centered around me, and I'm going to be the center of all Israelite worship. And he left the temple. Well, his disciples don't see it that way. His disciples who are blown away by the permanence and the magnificence of the architecture of the whole thing. I don't think they really understand. What what, what do you mean, Jesus? They look at it the opposite. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They're going, look at this. We didn't see nothing like this up north in Galilee, you know. Are you seeing these big buildings, right? When everybody comes to New York, the first thing they do when they get off the subway, whoa, right? The magnificence of this structure and what could be more permanent. And surely every God-fearing Jew that came to Israel, surely they're, they're looking at this temple going, yeah, this is where it's at. This is what needs to be restored. This is where we're going to stake our great fight against Rome and overthrow oppression. What could be more permanent than this? And Jesus knows in less than a generation, it's all coming down. But he answered them, verse 2, you see all these, do you? You, you, you seeing all this, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that won't be thrown down. He said, I know you think it looks permanent, but in just a few short years, there's going to be rebellion after rebellion until Rome is going to say enough's enough. There's going to be a war with Rome. Rome is going to crush Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Now, that literally came true. Uh, does anyone remember history quiz? It was a couple weeks ago I gave you this. Do you remember the date? that that came true from history. Does anybody, you can say it to your neighbor and uh, impress your friends if you remember this. Um, uh, The temple was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. Yep, so there it is. So you see Jesus is uh, is, uh, preaching and teaching in uh, 33, right? Right around 33 when he says this and less than 40 years later. Do you see that? The temple was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. The Jewish historian Josephus, who lived a few decades after that, wrote, quote, all the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors no ground for believing it had ever been inhabited. So, devastation. And you know that because of that historical fact, they must have been very confused by that. You know that, but they don't. They're still in 33 AD. Jesus has said multiple times, this temple's coming down. And, uh, and, and, and he's also mentioned this other thing that he, he calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man's gonna return and so uh, uh, when he returns, obviously when Jesus returns, that's the end of everything. So, so is he talking about the destruction of the temple with these prophecies in 70 AD? Or is he talking about the final, like, 
coming of Jesus, because everybody knows when Jesus returns, hey, when the author walks onto the stage, the play is over, right? I mean, when Jesus returns, so, so the disciples know that, and so they're wondering, like, well, what, what you would want to wonder, if Jesus is giving these prophecies and saying things like, there's not going to be one stone on top of another around here, they quite naturally want to know, they want some answers, they have some questions, and they ask two questions. And, uh, and, and, and his answer to these two questions, he sits down on the Mount of Olives, and because he sat down on the Mount of Olives when he answers these questions, they call this block of teaching the Olivet Discourse. If you want to be fancy, you just call it the Olivet Discourse. It just means he taught it from the Mount of Olives. So if you don't want to be fancy, you can say, that time he taught from the Mount of Olives. It'll be the same thing, okay? The Olivet Discourse, and it's, if you're keeping track, this is the fifth and final big block of teaching in Matthew. This is it. The first and most famous was the Sermon on the Mount. We've had the second, third, and fourth block of teaching, and now we come to the Olivet Discourse. And just so everybody knows where we are, the Olivet Discourse, the teaching from the Mount of Olives, is all about answering these two questions. Verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, here's what they want to know, two things. Tell us, when will these things be? You're going to tell me that every stone is going to be knocked over here in Jerusalem? We want to know when that'll be. And secondly, we want to know about this other thing you've been talking about. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Because when you come back, that's the end of everything. So we want to know those two things. When will these things be that you've just been talking about? The destruction of the temple, the downfall of Jerusalem. And we want to know uh, when will uh, the, uh, the, the coming of the age and, and, and what about your return now? Uh, most Bible readers agree those are the two questions. That's what he's answering. Then there's disagreement about how to interpret his reply. Even the structure of, of, of his reply is debated. I don't want to walk everyone through all the minutia of the uh, debate, but I do want you to know that good, faithful Christians who both believe the Bible can agree to disagree on exactly how to interpret this passage. Here's how I break down Jesus' reply. And this will be the roadmap through this text. Uh, here you go. You, you may want to jot down these three things. The, the, the first is uh, that first section, the first 35 verses. Remember, Jesus was asked two questions. When will the temple be destroyed? And then when, what will be the sign of this second com- your second coming? And I think he answers those just like any good teacher would, one at a time in that order. So the first 35 verses, really he's answering the first question, when will the temple be destroyed? And he didn't, he didn't just say, he could have said, eh, it'll be 70 AD. Instead, he says it this way, uh, at, uh, what is that, 30, verse 34 and 35, um, he, he puts it this way. He says that, um, uh, verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words won't pass away. That's why I think that whole section there he's talking about, this is going to be the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Then he switches at 36 and begins answering the second question. But as far as my second coming, that's when he says, I don't know. Nobody knows the day. Nobody knows the hour except one. Who? The Father. Okay? So he switches there. He talks about the second. Then, in the, starting in verse 45 and for the rest of 25, he tells, by my count, five different illustrations of how we're supposed to live in light of this. Spoiler alert, he's going to basically say, be ready, stay alert, stay watchful, okay? Now, this breakdown, and, and, and we'll spend the majority of our time on that first section today, this breakdown, um, uh, I, uh, I, I mean, that seems pretty neat and clean and very orderly. What could be debated about that? That, that? that seems to be, okay, that makes sense. Well, well, the problem is in this first section, 
And as we go through these verses, I think you'll see, you're going you're gonna to think to yourself, um, yeah, okay, part of this could be about the destruction of the temple, but part of it sure sounds like he's going beyond just 70 AD and talking about that second question, when is he going to return? Maybe he intertwined his, uh, his answers a little bit, and that's where the passage, I think, gets very tricky. To which I would say this passage is prophecy. What we're about to read in 4 through 35 is prophecy. And we have to allow for the fact that when, when, when the Bible does prophecy, it can allow for a double fulfillment. Let me give you a couple examples. In, uh, in Isaiah 10 and 11, the prophet Isaiah says, Assyria is going to be uh, chopped down like a forest. And then from a stump, there's going to be this little root of, uh, of Jesse and, and, and the remnant. And there's going to be life after this destruction. He's obviously talking about Israel after the destruction of Assyria, but there's a fulfillment that doesn't happen until there's a double fulfillment when Jesus is the ultimate child of Jesse, the ultimate seed of David that's going to bring fulfillment. So there's a double fulfillment there, right? Same thing is true in 2 Samuel when uh, Nathan the prophet says to David, I'm going to bless your kid and, and, and you know, he's going to have this throne that's going to last and it's, I'm going to bless him. And he did. He blessed Solomon and established his throne. But then he says, I'm going to establish your throne forever. Well, that's not ultimately fulfilled until Jesus. So in this one prophecy, you have multiple fulfillment. I think Jesus does the same thing here. Again, this first section, he's answering the first question. When is the temple going to be destroyed? And Jesus says, here's how that's going to go down. Then he moves to the second. But even as he's describing the destruction of the temple, Dan Doriani says it this way. The fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, I love this, foreshadows the last day. It prefigures the last day. We could call it a prototype of the last day. The fall of the destruction of Jerusalem, everybody got that? The temple went down in 70 AD, and it was. It was toppled over. Everybody got that? That is like a dress rehearsal for that final coming of Jesus. What can we learn from that? It resembles a play. The play, the dress rehearsal of the play looks like it in every way, but it's not the major thing itself. The fall of Jerusalem was a big event, but it rehearses and foreshadows another event, the last day. Uh, you can imagine I um, uh, worried in, with all this complexity that um, uh, just setting up these verses alone, uh, I was worried I'd lose people. So I preached all this to uh, my long-suffering, sweet, sweet wife, Jackie. And I said, okay, so now um, uh, I've got all that. Do you think I've lost anybody? Because uh, that's the intro. <laughs> She's like, you better put a roadmap up there. <laughs> So in case I lose anybody along the way, here's the roadmap. I believe this first section, Jesus is simply answering, this is what it's in the next generation, in the next 40 years, guys, here's what's going to go down. He's telling his disciples. In 36 through 44, he says, now here's what it's going to be like at my second coming. Okay, everybody clear? That's all, that's all I've tried to get across. Everybody with me so far? Okay, it's going to be a long train ride if not everybody's aboard now. Okay, 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 here we go. Okay, let's dive in. When, when will be the fall of Jerusalem? When will be the destruction of the temple? Here's what he says. First he says, here's what it's not going to be. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ. And they'll lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Like a woman in labor, these, these contractions are going to increase. It's just the beginning of birth pains, but it's not the end yet. Sure enough, Rome was always at war. There were all these would-be messiahs that would, that would bubble up saying, let's do this. Let's overthrow Rome. He says, whoa, 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 keep a cool head. 
Don't let anybody lead you astray. He's telling, remember, who's he talking to? He's talking to the disciples. I know you're going to be tempted to take up weaponry and fight Rome. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Keep a cool head. Uh, 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 don't, don't, uh, don't, 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 don't lose your mind here. This is business as usual. And you're going to hear about, but there's a famine. There was a famine. He, he actually predicted that Claudius, under the reign of Claudius in 41 through 54 AD, he says, don't let that throw you. You just keep preaching the good news, and don't be surprised if they start to hate you even more, just like they hated me. Look at verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That happened, didn't it? Uh, Peter, martyred, crucified upside down. Thomas, killed. Uh, uh, the list goes on and on. James, murdered. John got to live a, 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 out a long life. He was the only one, but he was in exile. So see, they're going through all this tribulation, just as he predicted. Don't be surprised by this. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Paul talks about that. He's writing, think about it. He's writing the New Testament letters in like 50 AD, 60 AD. That's happening. He's saying, guys, don't let your love grow cold. Don't, Don't fall away. Don't hate one another. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Oh, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Doesn't that sound like New Testament letters? He's saying, look, before 70 AD, it's going to be so tempting to quit, hang in there, persevere, perseverance develops hope. This is exactly, I mean, he's he's laying it out. Guys, this is what's going to happen. Your job is to stay focused. I'm going to give you this commission in just a few chapters after I'm risen from the dead. They're going to call it the Great Commission, and that's going to be your job. You stay focused on that. Here's how he says it, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. And sure enough... The, the, the word of God explodes through the whole Roman Empire before 70 AD, the whole known world. Now, none of this should be surprising. All of this was fulfilled. And Jesus is saying, keep a cool head. So I can tell you when it's not going to be the fall of Jerusalem, when it's not going to be, it's not 70 AD yet. It's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be in 40 AD or 50 AD. Just, just hang in there. Then there's going to be some signs that start to happen that are going to let you know the fall of the temple is very close. We're getting into 60, 68, 70 AD. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, you know, let the reader understand. Every time I've come to that passage, it makes me laugh. When you see the abomination of desolation, you're like, Standing in the holy place, yeah, I got nothing. Then they're like, let the reader understand. I'm like, well, I can tell you one thing for this reader. I do not understand. <laughs> but Matthew's telling you to uh, look deeper, look into the prophet Daniel. And Jesus says, when that happens, remember, he's talking to the disciples. He's saying, when you see this, this desolation take place, it's going to be an abomination. Standing in the holy place, let those who are in Judea, he goes, Jesus has one word for when that happens, Run. Run. Now, what is this abomination of desolation? Well, he's quoting Daniel 9, and he talks about, you know, the, the, the one who makes desolate. Think about it. The temple is God's sacred space there in Jerusalem, and Caesar's troops are going to march in in 70 AD and destroy it. Think about all the sacredness of the Holy of Holies. Think about that. You could only, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies just once a year, and Caesar's just going to march in there and desecrate that place? Here's a, a sculpture uh, that's dedicated uh, to an emperor, and in 70 AD, it was under the emperor Titus that did this. 
that depicts, those are Roman soldiers carrying off the sacred items inside God's temple. Do you see the, the lampstand? Do you see the menorah there? Now you tell me, what could be more desolating? They're, they're carrying it off in a victory parade. What are they going to do with it? They're going to take the holy things of God and they're going to offer it in a pagan worship to Zeus or to Jupiter as if to say, see, the Roman God apparently is stronger than the God of Israel. Sacrilege, right? Desolation. That's an, that is an abomination. Jesus says, when you see that happen, the Roman soldiers are not far behind. And so he's telling his group of disciples, many of whom are going to be alive in Jerusalem at that time, and they're going to start coming door to door, and they're going to kill anybody that they think are followers of that Jewish temple. He says, run. When you see that, run. Run and don't look back. It's kind of like we tell little kids, hey, if there's a fire, I know your teddy bear is special, but you run. There's no time to go back and get little teddy bear. You run. Jesus says the same thing to his children. Verse 17, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. When you see those Roman soldiers start to demolish the temple and they start to plunder that stuff, don't go back. There won't be time. Let the one who's in the field not turn back and get his cloak. Oh, you know what? Those cloaks are very valuable. Let me go back and, and grab that. Maybe there's just time. No, go. There won't be time. He says, imagine if you had a nursing child. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Look at the tenderness of Jesus. He's saying, this is going to happen. It's going to happen in less than 40 years. And, and, and imagine trying to be a refugee and slow down. Jesus knows, by the way, he was a refugee. Remember the slaughter of the innocents by Herod? He knows what it's like to be a fleeing for your life. Verse 20, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Okay, so you can imagine the added difficulty of having to do this in the cold or on the Sabbath. There'll be great trip for then there'll be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Terrible. D.A. Carson writes, There have certainly been greater numbers of deaths. We think of the Holocaust, six million in the Nazi death camps, mostly Jews, twenty million under Stalin, but never so high a percentage of a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. And he says the only hope is the mercy of God. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved, would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. In other words, you let that kind of Caesar's wildfire rampage burn, and it is enough violence to burn a whole, all the humans. But the mercy of God puts a limit to evil. So what do we do? He says, run. And he, he says that because he knows the natural temptation. You're a refugee. Your temple's been destroyed. Now you've run out to the hills of Judea. He's saying, remember, in those moments, I'm telling you now, this is less than 40 years away, I'm the new fulfillment of the temple. And the natural human temptation is going to be to fight back. Let's just get a military Messiah. Is there no one who will lead us to fight back against these Romans? Give us a Christ who will, that's the word for Messiah, right? Give us a Christ who will lead us into bloodshed and war. And Jesus says, don't do it, don't do it. Look at verse 23, if in, then if anyone says to you, because I know what you're going to want to do, you're going to want to get a, a mighty Messiah and fight back. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Don't do it. Don't do it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In other words, I'm not doubting they're going to have, through sleight of hand or some other means, they're going to be able to show off they have great power. He's saying, don't buy it. Don't buy it for a second. See? Look at verse 25. I have told you beforehand. I'm telling you this now. This is going to save lives. 
Don't believe anyone who says, Jesus, oh, some people might even say, I'm, I'm Jesus again over here. I, I've returned secretly. Don't believe it. By the way, the Jehovah Witness, who are followers of Charles Taze Russell, uh, that he's a false prophet, who one of his false teachings says that Jesus returned secretly in 1914. And these verses teach us, see, don't, don't believe that. Don't believe it. Why? Because when Jesus returns, he says, it won't be a secret. You won't be able to miss it. You won't be able to miss it. Look at verse 26. So if they say to you, no, no, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. In other words, there's not going to be this secret little return of Jesus that nobody knows about. No, 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 no. It's going to be public. Verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Can you imagine anybody missing sheet lightning from east to west that lights up the entire night sky? That's not, well, maybe he came secretly over, you know, uh, in uh, uh, just over, down in Warrior. Maybe he just popped in uh, for a hot minute. And No, this is sheet lightning across the sky, right? No one can miss it. Or here, here's a proverb. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Isn't that great? From miles and miles away, you can tell where the corpse is when you look up in the sky and you see those vultures. It's obvious to everyone. It's not hidden away in secret. Then he uses some Old Testament prophecy. This is Old Testament prophecy language. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Oh, okay. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, some of you read that, and you think, well, surely aren't those verses about the final coming of Jesus? And I would argue there could be a double fulfillment here. I'll get back to that. But I wonder if we think that because we've been raised on other passages in the New Testament and a lot of us are old enough to remember the Left Behind series. And so we have all that in mind. Listen, the disciples had never read Left Behind. What they have read is the Old Testament. They read Isaiah. They read Daniel. So that's why I, I, I take issue and disagree with some of their uh, the, the Left Behind series where there'll be this secret rapture where everybody's taken away or something. Ah, they had read Daniel. They had read Isaiah. And Jesus here is directly quoting Isaiah and Daniel. And so I think he's talking about still the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Here's what I mean. I'm not saying there can't be more to this, but at least he means in the Old Testament, Prophets would often return, so like Isaiah, for example, he calls these kingdoms, these earthly kingdoms, heavenly bodies, and the great kingdoms were represented by stars and sun and moon and so forth. So when he says the, the stars have fallen, the moon has fallen from the sky, he's talking about these great kingdoms being toppled. I believe in this case, Jerusalem being toppled. And, 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 and when, when everybody thinks back to what I'm saying, the tribes, you know, will grieve over this. The Son of Man coming in great glory is a reference to the book of Daniel where the Son of Man overcomes and then there before the great I Am, the Son of Man is able to come before the Almighty, come before the Lord. And there's this celebration and his victory shout is announced to everyone. That's what I think he's saying. He's going to send out heavenly messengers. The gospel call is like a trumpet the disciples, powered by angelic messengers, right, going out, making sure the gospel is proclaimed not just to Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria, but the gospel is proclaimed, what does it say? To the ends of the earth. How's it written? From one end of heaven to the other. The four winds all over the gospel is going to go forth. 
So once this is set in motion, it's going to happen fast. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you will know it is near. The falling of the temple is near. Uh, most translations translate it is near. The ESV has he is near, which is showing there's some disagreement in how to read that particular passage. But you'll know it's near at the very gates. Here it is, verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. How much is a generation? You figure about 40. In the Bible, they talk about generation in the wilderness, about 40 years. Well, what, was he right? He says this in 33 AD, and by my math, in 70 AD, that's 37 years, all this takes place. Why can you trust him? Because heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Completely trustworthy. Well, I have uh, tried to show that I think these verses refer to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I admit there are others who do not hold this view, and you ready for this? I may be wrong. (laughs) Some of you are not shocked by that at all. They may be right. I will allow, like all prophecy, there can be a double fulfillment, that the fall of Jerusalem is a dress rehearsal. I could just quickly rattle off some instances. You probably already thought of some. Did you think of any of these? Prediction. False Christ will come. Well, that was fulfilled by 70 AD. The Jewish prophets predict God will deliver the Jews from Rome, right? Let's get a Messiah. Let's fight Rome. That's a false Messiah. It's a false Christ. The final fulfillment, though, the same thing will happen. The New Testament teaches us this great Antichrist will come and deceive many with words and deeds. Ah, so maybe there's a double fulfillment. What about this one? The wars, famines, and earthquakes will strike. Well, that was fulfilled by 70 AD. Rome is often at war, and there was, as I said, a famine during the reign of Claudius. Okay, but what about the final fulfillment? Guess what? There's going to be wars, earthquakes. The troubles of this life will intensify near the end. Or maybe you thought about this one when Jesus said, the gospel will be preached to the whole world. Fulfillment by 78 AD, it was. It was proclaimed through the Roman Empire. That was the known world to them. Ah, but isn't there a final fulfillment that the gospel will be preached to every people? Or maybe this one, the abomination that causes desolation will stand in the holy place. And sure enough, idolatrous Roman armies invaded Jerusalem, fought and killed many, even right there in the temple. That's desolation. But there'll be a final fulfillment, final rebellion against God, bringing religious abomination and desolation. A prediction about the sun and moon being darkened. That was fulfilled by 780. Jerusalem's fall, it foreshadows the end of earth's powers. The final fulfillment, this world order will end when Christ returns. I'll give you one more. What about that? The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Well, I think... The very fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple shows that that's his sign. He's saying, see, that authenticates his message. It shows he is is who he says he is. He reigns in heaven. But one day, that trumpet call won't be a trumpet call to receive the good news of the gospel. One day, that trumpet call will be the end. He will return on the clouds of the sky with angels. And that won't be a coming like Daniel, coming of the Son of Man before God. That will be a coming of heaven to earth for Jesus to establish his kingdom, the final fulfillment. Well, all that was to say, Jesus answered the first question about the destruction of the temple. I promised that I would spend the bulk of my time at first part. I feel I have spent. Uh, 
for that second question, what about the final coming? You say, that's very interesting. That's what he told the disciples. But this next part not only applies to the disciples because 70 AD happened. But what about the stuff he predicts still hasn't happened yet? Doesn't that apply to us? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. In this case, the disciples and us are in the same boat. We're still looking forward to that final coming, that second coming of Jesus. So the the million-dollar question is, when will it be? I mean, just tell us the date. You ready? Jesus says... I don't know. I don't know. Look at verse 36. In fact, no one knows but the Father. And if you have a problem with Jesus not knowing that, then you probably also have a problem with Jesus needing food and sleep. And uh, uh, that he laid aside his divinity. He was fully God and fully man. And to not access that uh, fully God part for us and our salvation. He doesn't know. He's glorified in this. No one knows, he says, but the Father. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I, uh, I had so many examples of this. I didn't want to belabor the point. But my favorite was an author uh, who wrote um, 88 Reasons Why the World Will End in 1988. <laughs> and you know what I thought? I just now ordered my copy. And it's like I've been late my whole life. And here I am decades late. Uh, I'm, I, I do remember very clearly uh, May 21st, uh, the May 21st. So how Camping says the world's going to end on May 21st. I forget the year. I should have written it down. What was that? Does anybody remember this a couple decades ago, May 21, the big one? Okay, anybody sell their stock and head to the hills with ammo? Okay, all right. You don't have to admit that. Um, but I just always remember like May 21, he's coming back, May 21. And there's these billboards all across New York City and people are literally legit all in on this. The day is gonna be May 21, it's gonna happen. Uh, and I always thought like Jesus returning like on my anniversary, huh? But he, you know, he didn't. And then, and then had the audacity, instead of saying I was wrong, he said, I miscalculated, it's October 21st of this year. And it obviously wasn't that either. It's unbelievable to me that that is so clear. If you hear anyone, just, just promise me this. If you've heard nothing else in this sermon, if you're watching TV or you're listening to a preacher who says this is going to be the day or the hour, will you at least just do me this? Don't send that person your credit card information. Please. Can we just at least agree to that? Uh, no one knows. And I, I mean, literally, for someone straight faced to tell me, well, it says they don't know the day or the hour, says nothing about the month or the year. I'm like, please get out, get out. Just, just, just stop. I'm going to run for the hills of Judea when I hear that. Okay. Um, here's what we can all agree on. It will be at an unknown time. Fair? No one knows but the Father. It'll be an unknown time. It will be obvious. It will be sudden. It will be absolutely awesome. It'll be absolutely obvious. It'll be sudden. I used to do an experiment when teaching to youth groups where I would take my watch and I would ask someone to just watch the second hand and for one minute, just count down one minute. And uh, they would start and they would say, okay, and 50 seconds left. I said, just imagine with me, what if 50 seconds? 40, 40, what's important right now? 30, is anybody thinking about, you know, their social media likes? Is anybody thinking about Instagram? 20 There's 20 seconds left for the end of the world. What do you do? 10, and even though nine, it was an illustration, seven, six, even though it was an illustration, when the clock struck zero, you could hear a pin drop in that room. I said, now listen, we all knew this was an illustration, and I was just up here talking about what it might be like for the end, but don't you realize, why couldn't it be one minute from now? Why couldn't it be that the sky would split open? The trumpet will sound. 
It'll be sudden, it'll be obvious, and it's an unknown time. And, there, and listen, there won't be a second chance. There's no chance to repent or to get things right. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to be ready. Here's how Jesus says it. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They're unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. See, people say, but there can't be this cataclysmic thing. Why? Because I'm engaged. (laughs) But don't you realize, like, his point is not just about marriage. His point is, like, the daily things of life will keep going, and you won't think anything about it, and the sky will rip open, and that will be it. But it all feels so normal. We are on the precipice any moment. He could return. Have you pondered? There will be a bride and a groom. Right moments before the return of Jesus. Do you? I do. Do you? I do. You may kiss the bride. Trumpet! Oh. This close, you know? Right? There will be seminary graduates who walk across the stage. Graduates, you're now ready. You're going to go into ministry, and you're going to preach the gospel until he comes. Trumpet sound. Well, uh, that's, uh, that's it. Will they have wasted their days? Will they have wasted their years? Not if they're doing it in preparation to glorify God with their life. Not at all. That's exactly what a man or a woman should be doing. Oh, okay, so, so the, 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 then two men, he uses an, uh, uh, one from farming and one from um, um, milling. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two, woman, two women grinding at the meal. One will be taken, one left. Can you imagine the way they would grind? Rest. And the two women on both sides of the grinding mill. Rest. There won't be time to set your affairs in order. Is everyone, everyone clear about what I'm saying? Taken, left. Does left mean they'll be taken? Or does left mean, do you want to be the one left or the one to be the one taken? I, I don't know. This isn't clear. Not, not from this scripture alone. It's really not. Because it could mean taken away in judgment as an illustration. Or it could mean taken away, you know, to be, meet Jesus. In, it, it doesn't matter. The point he's making is keep watch, be ready. Look, therefore, well, okay, therefore, stay awake. That's, that's true for sermons that go this long. That's true for, that's, it's true for <laughs> multiple applications. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Very obvious. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is coming. No one disagrees on this. He is coming. His return is set. It'll be an unknown time. It'll be obvious. It'll be sudden. It'll be unexpected. So what do we do? Who then's that wise and faithful servant? Who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. He doesn't say, blessed is the one who hears the sermon and says, sell all the stock, go up on the mountain, get some extra water and ammo, and wait for the fireworks. That's not who he says will be blessed. Who will be blessed? Faithful, wise, going about the master's business. Faithful, wise, go about the master's business. Do you know what you should do if it's the end of the world as we know it? Be faithful, be wise, and be about your father's business. Be faithful and wise. That means a cool head and a warm heart. Don't let your love grow cold. If you need to get right with somebody, do it today. If you need to repent from sin, do it today. If you need to trust him for your salvation, do not wait. I'm pleading with you. 
Truly I say to you, that servant he'll set over his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, I, it's all my, my master's delayed. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him. In an hour he doesn't know. And he'll cut him in pieces, put him in with the hypocrites. In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So live faithful, live wise. Do you see that? Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Musicians are going to come, help us in a time of response. Wise means keep a cool head. Faithful means keep a warm heart. The only way to be ready is to stay ready. How many of you heard that? You don't, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. See? Jesus doesn't give us, if you want an application, some people are like, man, that, that stuff about 70 AD, you lost me, preacher. Could you just give it to me, simple, something I can apply? Here you go, how about this? Jesus doesn't give us a timeline, he gives us a mindset. Be ready. Is there any area of your obedience you need to give over to the Lord today is today to the day? Do you need to be saved? Today is the day. One day it will be too late. It's not too late today. If you live wise and faithful, here's what I know, you won't regret it. You're good either way. Think about it. If you walk out of here today after Sunday school and after you, your heart and mind is clear with the Lord, if you live a life that is wise and faithful, whether you're caring for a child or you're leading a, a bazillion dollar company in an organization, whether you are teaching children this week, whether you're a minister at First Baptist, if you will live wise and faithfully, being about your father's business, then here's what I know. You won't regret it. You'll be so glad you lived wise and faithful if Jesus comes back tomorrow. Perfect. You'll be blessed. And here's what I know. If you live wise and faithful, then you're going to plant seeds that are going to bear fruit. If Jesus doesn't come back for 2,000 years, you'll look back and go, I did it right. Blessed. You can't go wrong by living a wise and faithful life in service to him. Why? Because he is coming. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would take my words and anything that was helpful or encouraging, edifying and true, you would implant deeply in our hearts anything that was mistaken or not helpful, that it would be deleted from memory. God, ultimately, I want to live a life that is pleasing to you, that is faithful and wise. Give us grace to that end. I want our people, Lord, to live lives that are faithful and wise, trusting, believing, hoping, expecting your return. And thank you, O oh Lord, that uh, you will return. Thank you, Lord, that you have not given up and that you have great plans in store. Grant that we would be ready. In Jesus' name, amen.